0: Welcome, Eileen. Now, you are a geoscience educator. Um, What does that mean?
1: So I'd like to add geoscience educator and communicator. And really, for me, what it means is creating environments where people can learn. And I'm lucky to be an earth scientist and get to talk about the earth because I think it's extremely cool.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. And how long have you been doing uh, geoscience education?
1: Um. Probably, for thirty or so years, so a long time, and yeah, it really began with my kids, actually, so I was a geochemist, so if you'd had this interview with me thirty years ago or so, I would have said I'm a geochemist sedimentologist, but having had kids in the school system, and the teachers immediately as soon as they know you're a scientist, they ask you, "Can you come in and can you bring fossils or bring rocks in and things like that and help us with teaching the curriculum. So that really changed my whole career. And I've been a geoscience educator since.
0: Wonderful. That's a really interesting way of getting into uh, geoscience education through your children.
1: Yeah. I found that my kids, you asked, one of the things on the script is, you know, what's your proudest achievement? And my kids are, so, <laughs> yeah.
0: I guess they're not still in school. <laughs>
1: They certainly aren't. No, they're, uh, one's a doctor and one's a uh, business person, but she has just had a child. So I'm a grandparent and I'm so excited. It's changed my whole world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sure you can't wait until you can bring falses into their classroom too. For
1: sure. Yeah.
0: Um, now, d- did you have any professional training in geoscience education or is it just uh, trial and error and uh, personal uh, passion? <laughs>
1: It's a good question. Um, My training is as a geoscientist. I uh, did my undergraduate in Ireland. That's where I grew up and was raised. So I went to Trinity College, Dublin, worked for the Geological Survey of Ireland for a couple of the summers, um, doing my honors thesis in one and just learning how to be a field geologist in the other. And then I came to Canada with my partner and did a PhD at the University of Western Ontario. It's called Western Now had some incredible mentors there. And our first academic jobs were at the University of Victoria. So I worked as a classic geologist going in the field and researching, and then had children. And as I just said, that changed my whole trajectory because it's really difficult to do field work with uh, small children. And I realized that there was a greater need and something that I could do to help teachers teach the science that's uh, mandated actually in the curriculum and provide some of the resources to help them do that. And it's been really fun. And so you asked, do I have training in that? No, classically, uh, academics are not trained to teach and it's a big part of what we all do, but it's not part of how we're trained. We have lots of experience with doing research, but not that, so trial and error. And I have to say watching other people teach and some incredible teachers that I've had over the course of my my career have really shown me. And I, I remember very strongly from my undergraduate degree in Ireland, we had a wonderful professor, Adrian Phillips, who would take you in the field and show you these amazing rocks and outcrops and landscapes. And he never told you anything. He always asked questions. What do you think? What do you think? And how do you know? And how would we figure this out? And I just love that because I think the way you teach makes a huge difference in how people learn. And the whole model of telling is, uh, I think I'm glad it's falling by the wayside. And UBC has done a wonderful job with Carl Wyman and the Carl Wyman Institute there.
0: Yeah. Wonderful! Yeah, that is one of the uh, the odd oddities of universities that you've got people who are great at researching but not always great at uh, teaching. Um, but it sounds like you're really passionate about it. I've heard great things about uh, the teaching that you do do. Um, so it sounds like you've got it down pat.
1: <laughs> well, I made some huge errors over the course. Of, while I was doing my PhD, I had the opportunity to teach a course at York University, and you know I did the classic thing that a uh, a teacher does, or somebody so passionate about a subject, you want to tell them everything. And it doesn't really work. So my PhD supervisor, Bill Fife was fantastic. He said, you know what, Eileen, if they only learn one thing from an hour of your classes, that's already making a huge achievement. And I've learned that it's far more important actually to generate enthusiasm in the learners and empower them to learn themselves than it is to impart a vast amount of information. Because people can learn themselves and that's the best way of learning.
0: Wonderful, and I mean, even seasoned communicators will make that mistake. Um, I know even last week I was asked to talk about myself and I just blurted out everything I could possibly say in 60 seconds and afterward I thought that was terrible.
1: Oh, it's all a learning process, though, Daniel, right? You just you learn and the next time you do it better. And those of us who have been at this for ages, we, we've made tons and tons of mistakes. But hopefully things are a little bit better now.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. I'm curious, Um, what are you working on right now?
1: So I I spent 30 years at the University of Victoria teaching and researching there. And six years ago now, I moved over to Simon Fraser University and was extremely lucky to have a dream job open up there. So part of it is as a teaching professor in earth science. And the other half of my portfolio is as special advisor to the Dean of Science on public education and outreach, which means that I can champion for the faculty, education and community engagement and outreach and communication. And as part of that, I have uh, gathered up teams. Teams are really important, and working with others, um, you can achieve far more that way. So we have a wonderful team who have developed an entirely new course to meet the lab science requirement for teachers. So they only need to teach one course, or to, to take one course in science that's a lab course to become a to K-8 teacher. And can you imagine if you only had one course in something and then had to teach all of what's mandated in the curriculum? So what we're trying to do is uh, we've developed a course that looks at several, looks at all the areas of science. Not everything, but from an inquiry point of view and bringing in indigenous perspectives and very much about doing the science. So it's a studio course. So part of my research is to look, to look at how that works and how we can make it better. And the other thing that I'm doing is kind of a COVID outcome. Um, I'm working with my husband and a research student on uh, how ENGOs uh, impact Salish Sea, the sustainability and advocacy for the Salish Sea environment. So that's a totally different uh, type of research for me, but I'm looking at it from the education and communication perspective. A lot of ENGOs are extremely active in education.
0: And what are ENGOs?
1: Environmental non-profit organizations. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no <worries. laughs>
0: Doing the typical
1: thing that a science communicator should not do and use jargon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Again, we all do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true.
0: And what's your course called?
1: So, SCI 192 is the science around us, and it's specifically for teachers or people going into teaching. And the I also teach a science communication course that I developed as part of my portfolio, and I believe that it's the first science communication course at the undergraduate level for science students in any university in Canada, And the role is not to teach them how to better produce a conference presentation or a poster for academic audiences, but it's to empower them to engage with the public, actually, with their science.
0: Wonderful. That's a really valuable course.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, the students, I think, benefit a lot from it. I really enjoyed watching them because... I think one of the things um, I've done in the past is to undervalue what students are capable of. And we feel like, you know, we need to tell them everything and we need to handhold. And actually, COVID has shown that as well, that if you let students at it and you give them the space and the tools, they are absolutely amazing. They come up with incredible things. So I love that part of teaching
0: too. Absolutely. And that's a great uh, way to teach, to be super receptive. Uh, and to learn as much from the students as you teach to them.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Um, Now, why is geoscience education important?
1: Daniel. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it it has has to be be asked. asked. We live on on the earth, and we rely on the earth for so much, for our water, for most of our resources. Um, You know, our landscapes affect how we live. Uh, If you look across Canada at the geology of Canada, uh, the types of things people do across Canada depend on the geology that underlies each province. So it's fundamental to how we live, and we're subject to a lot of natural hazards that are uh, part of the Earth's dynamic nature, and it's incredibly important to understand that so we can live respectfully with our planet. So... I'm pretty passionate about people being more aware of the earth and what she does for us so that we can treat her better.
0: Wonderful. That's a very eloquent way of of putting it. I'm gonna have to borrow that. Okay, do. Now you mentioned your field work earlier. Uh, You mentioned you've done field work in Ireland and field work in Canada. Um, One of my favorite parts of these interviews has been hearing about field stories. Apparently, the field is this crazy place where just magical stuff happens. Um, do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share today?
1: I love being in the field. And as a very young geologist, my first jobs were in, in the field in Southwest Ireland, in Cork, and in West Cork as a field geologist. And it's completely different than in Canada because there's lots of people around. And so you're, I had a bicycle. I... Camped with my colleague in a an abandoned schoolhouse, and you know we went around with our backpacks and our hammers, and people would follow us around. You know if they're if they're that interested in those rocks, there's got to be something interesting about them. So they kept asking, you know, are you looking for something? Are you looking for for gold? They were quite certain there's got to be gold there, and so it was a very uh, community focused. Uh, activity because you were always chatting with people and explaining things you know what we were looking at and then um, I moved to Canada and my first field work in Canada was in northwest BC it was a helicopter supported field project um, in the NACE headwaters absolutely stunning and it was just such a huge change for me to in the morning take off in the helicopter and survey the trajectory that you were going to walk during the day to map and make sure that there were no wolverines or grizzly bears on the path. And very often there were. And it was incredible to see those animals and just be exposed to that. So absolutely loved it. And I've got no close encounter stories, thankfully, but I do think that we were once tracked by a grizzly bear because you could hear it and you could smell it, but uh, it left us alone and we left it alone. Yeah. But field work is incredible, just getting out and, you know, being part of the natural world like that in these incredible places. We're so lucky to be able to do that.
0: Wonderful. Now, I suspect I know the answer to this next question, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Um, what's your, your favorite part about your work, um, either as a geoscience educator or uh, when you were a geochemist?
1: I love the people. That's my favorite part. Um, working with people and, and working together to make change is incredible. And as an earth science educator, we have a, a really strong community in Canada, the Canadian Geoscience Education Network, and working together and sharing ideas—it's a real community of practice, and I love that. And I love seeing the look on uh, people's faces when they suddenly get it. Um, and I guess my favorite thing is to take them out. You know, if you can take out a group of students to the field or you know to a beach, whatever, it's just magic happens there. Yeah. So combining, um, being out with uh with being with the people that i work with and and teach is wonderful i'm
0: glad you brought that up um i'm not a a geologist myself but when i started working at the museum i really did feel like i'd been uh, welcomed into a family um yeah the community is very very tight and supportive
1: yeah it is partly because it's a small community i think and a lot we know each other quite well and I think there's lots of opportunity for collaborating and sharing together. So that's pretty cool.
0: Wonderful. Now I've got the inverted question. Um, What's the worst or the most challenging part of your work?
1: Um, I think partly battling for um, recognition that education and communication are important. you know we we always think of the a good geologist as one that's out in the field mapping and uh, creating data and telling the stories of the earth but i think it's really important that we also focus on education and learn about how to do it better and also and science communication really is only a thing in canada in the last 10 years so it's very new but raising awareness about how important that is. I think your science isn't done until you've communicated it, and not just to your peers, but to public audiences. They fund us, so we should be communicating with them.
0: Exactly, that's perfect.
1: And I hate marking. (laughs) (laughs) That's the worst part.
0: Absolutely, I think every teacher at every level um, feels the exact same way.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So what's, what is your background, Daniel?
0: Oh, my background is in urban and inner city studies.
1: Oh, very cool.
0: <laughs> and um, yeah, just museum work.
1: <laughs> Good for you.
0: Thanks. Now I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belonging with to any um, underrepresented communities in your field? And if so, uh, do you feel like that's impacted your work?
1: So that's a tricky one. Um, I do, actually. I belong to women in science, and I think we are underrepresented, and I think we've had, a, um, in some ways, a challenging path. And it particularly influenced me when I became pregnant with my first child and realized that at the university there was no maternity leave for faculty, no maternity policy for faculty. So having to... um, have those discussions in order to be able to take time off that wasn't just on your sabbatical or during the summer um, was a bit of a challenge. And just that there's no recognition that a woman's role and path can be different. So I was lucky to have a fairly supportive environment and I was able to go halftime when my kids were little to facilitate a decent work-life balance and but I do think that you know there are lots of microaggressions and micro discrimination that women in science face, and it's getting a little bit better, but there's still a lot of uh, of issues with that. but the good thing is that conversations are opening up about it, and I think that's a really positive thing.:
0: Is that still the case at that university that there's no maternity leave? And now oh, there is right? okay, now
1: there is. but this was thirty two years ago. <laughs>
0: Still, that seems so recent.
1: (laughs) I know, I know. Anyway, it's getting better.
0: Good. Yeah. yeah, Hopefully it's getting better. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Now, as a whole, do you feel like the field is a very welcoming one or is it a little more insular?
1: I think it's pretty welcoming. Yeah. And I think particularly the earth science education and science communication fields, they're amazing. Um, You know, people are... Extremely welcoming, and they're just thrilled to um, to share and to be part of communities together. so yeah, very, very welcoming.
0: yeah, they're so passionate about sharing their information they they are generally passionate about many things and sharing uh, many parts of themselves
1: <laughs> exactly, and learning from each other and amplifying each other's voices, which is incredibly important, and scaling up efforts, yeah, so yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing.
0: Now, you mentioned a little bit how um, the pandemics affected your work. Um, would you care to go into that, that a little more? How were you impacted by COVID-19?
1: So as a, t- as a, a professor and teaching courses, um, I was teaching science communication and our studio course, which is a very hands-on, in-person course, And during 2020, and we had to pivot to online. And that was a huge challenge. So from a, basically you're developing a totally different course to teach something online versus in-person, especially when it's very interactive. And, you know, when you have people come in and give presentations and set exercises and do have discussions and things like that and demonstrate things, it's hard to do that online. But actually Zoom is incredible. So I think steep learning curve with the technology but I've realized that there are huge advantages to it. But it's a a lot of extra work for, uh, for faculty to do that. Well worth it. I've learned a lot about students in the process, and I think it's really hard for many of them, but I think some absolutely thrive in the online environment. So it's been very interesting. And I think a lot of us have learned things from teaching online that will carry over into um, into our modified teaching in the future.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely been the case uh, over here too, where um, some of the things that we were really resistant to in the beginning um, will probably be legacy uh, projects.
1: For sure, for sure. But what I have to say about COVID is I sure miss my colleagues. You know, that's uh, that's a big disadvantage not be, not to be able to see all the people you work with. And, you know, those small things that happen when you're together and the ideas that get shared. Um, I don't think you can underestimate uh, what we miss by not having that.
0: Absolutely. The the soft contacts.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Now, um, if anyone who's listening to this has been impassioned to follow in your footsteps, uh, what background or courses uh, or experience would you recommend that they uh, pursue if they want to follow you?
1: Um, I think the main thing is follow your passion. If you're interested in it, take all the opportunities that come up. There's lots of opportunities uh, to do science communication training. There's the ComSciCon Canada um, communication uh, training by grad students for grad students, for example. So, as a grad student, that's a great way of uh, becoming part of a, a community and a network and getting some skills and training. Science communication is really hard and it's extremely complex. And, you know, just thinking about what the goal might be and what the audience might be and what your messages will be isn't simple. And then getting rid of jargon isn't simple. So, it's a tough old thing but there's lots of opportunities to learn out there. So I would say take, what, take all those opportunities and volunteer, become part of a community. That's really important. Um, so the Canadian Geoscience Education Network, the uh, Science Communication Networks. Um, yeah, but follow your passion because I think everybody's path is different. And don't be afraid to be difficult if you think your path doesn't fit with what the... Uh, the classic path is or whatever. Do, do your own thing and follow your passion because that will be amazing.
0: Absolutely. Um, if you want to go to, go down that path, someone else may also want to go down it too. So.
1: Yeah, and you can be incredibly creative. I think that's part of what I've loved with the science education or science education. I've gotten to publish. I self-publish the Field Guide to Identification of Pebbles. And I learned so much and I I spent afternoons and evenings of a year going around trying to sell this thing because I self-published it. Um I learned a lot. I learned how to deal with um with publishers. Harbor Publishing is the publisher now, and it's a Canadian bestseller, and so it's it's been wonderful. And I've worked with CBC on Um, the nature of things they did one ocean and geologic journeys and I helped with the teacher guides for those nature of things episodes so say yes when people ask you to do something say yes I'd love to do that even if you don't know how you'll learn how and uh, that's that's how you move the dial forward
0: wonderful yep don't be afraid to step out of your comfort zone
1: exactly exactly that's where the magic happens very often
0: What do you consider to be the most important course or courses that you took when you were in school?
1: Um, I think in school, when I was a youngster, the most important course that got me going in earth science was a geography course. And I don't know if you found this as a theme with the people you've interviewed, but mentors that people have had have been, mentors have been incredibly important for me. And my first geography teacher, or my high school geography teacher at school was amazing. He took us on field trips and he did that classic thing of creating an environment in which you could thrive and explore and discover. So that was a key course for me.
0: Wonderful. Yeah, that is something that I find uh, often happens is that someone um, really inspirational at the beginning of your life can have a lasting impact.
1: Yeah, for sure. My parents were, were the same. They both loved being outside and love nature and they really inspired and helped guide me. So that's that was wonderful. And I had a fantastic PhD supervisor, Bill Fife, who was a world recognized geochemist, but took an enormous amount of time out of his life to share his passion with high school students. And also he was one of the early uh, promoters of, we've got to do something about global change, as it was called then. He worked with people like Digme, Digby McLaren for the Royal Society. And just having a person like that as a role model, you know, as a scientist, he was outstanding, but as a mentor and as an example, he was absolutely super.
0: It's no wonder you went into ge- uh, geoscience education.
1: Yeah, had very good role models.
0: You mentioned you have grad students, right? Working with you?
1: Yep, Yeah. I have some amazing grad students. <laughs> I hope you, Yen and Courtney, and Alice are listening.
0: <laughs> what do you look for when you're choosing your grad students?
1: Somebody with passion, somebody who um, has a real drive to drive an interest and passion in the area and who can be independent. And it really helps if they're good writers.
0: Mm. Yes. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, everything else. I mean, that's what a grad student does. They learn and they they grow. And so I think you just need to start out with somebody who's passionate and willing to work hard and willing to work independently and push you as much as you push them.
0: Again, that reciprocal relationship.
1: <laughs> For sure.
0: Now, grad students are at the beginning of their careers. Um And you've still got a long ways to go uh, in your career. Uh, But looking toward the end of your career, what would you like to be your legacy or what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone when you retire?
1: Aye, 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 Daniel. I usually (laughs) don't think of that sort of thing. (laughs) But I guess if if teachers in BC feel a little bit more empowered to teach science, especially the ones... uh, from kindergarten to grade eight, nine, where they don't have to be specialists in science. If they feel a little bit more empowered and enthusiastic and confident to teach science, then I think I'll have, uh, I'll be happy. Because I think that's really important. You know, we can't get the next generation excited about science and earth science if their teachers are terrified of it. And many of them are just because they don't have the background and they have this curriculum that they have to teach with few resources. So I noticed that you also interviewed Andy Randall and he produces amazing resources for teachers to use through the Below BC initiative. So I think you know if teachers are aware of these things and use them and feel more confident to teach and encourage their kids in science and earth science, I think then we've, uh, We've
0: done okay. Wonderful. (laughs) Uh, Now, finally, um, that was talking about you in the future, but your field is also going to be changing. I find that very often the field that you enter uh, is very different than the field that uh, a person is in when they retire, uh, because every single field of study is changing at lightning speed these days. So, where do you see geoscience education going in the future, and how do you? Um, or what, what advice do you have for young people to anticipate those changes?
1: So I think it goes back to something we talked about a little bit earlier, um, that science, the communication and education um, are going to be more and more integral, and we're going to be more aware of their importance. Uh, it's one of the things I noticed or that we found in the uh, environmental, non-governmental organizations or nonprofits Uh, communication, the profile and the importance of communication and education across the board are being raised. And partly that's about impact. So if we want our science to be impactful on society and make change, then we have to communicate and we have to educate. So I think that's going to be a big change. I think, I, I hope that in the future, a science communication course is absolutely mandatory maybe a capstone project for undergrads and graduates where they have to do a communication aspect of their research project. So it's, it's that way in the US, for example, with NSF grants, you have to communicate and you have to do knowledge mobilization as a part of your research. Not yet in Canada, but I think it's going there. And if we have to communicate and do outreach and educate, then I think we need the training and experience and provide opportunities for students and grad students and faculty to learn those science communication skills. And as I said before, it's not necessarily easy. There's lots to learn, but you can learn it. So I think that it would be really nice if uh, courses were mandatory. So that we have the skills and we're empowered to do that because we owe it to society especially as earth scientists because so much of climate change um, impacts the water cycle and uh, all of the natural hazards and things we live in a tectonically active area here you know citizens ought to know uh, it's our responsibility that citizens know about the risks of where they live and how to mitigate them and what they can do. So I think it's a. I hope that it'll be more and more recognised as an important aspect of our, of our science.
0: And it's funny in the past, it seems like it was it was more um, uh, geoscience educators pushing information onto the public, but now there's a growing uh, thirst and desire from the public, and they're pulling. Uh, that information out of us as as they see the impacts of climate change affecting them in their day-to-day lives.
1: Exactly, Daniel. And I think it goes beyond just the the knowledge and the information. Um, The science communication research body really shows that the deficit model, which is where you're just providing information to fix things, doesn't actually work. It requires recognition of where people are coming from and a dialogue and engagement as opposed to just dumping information. So just, and that's where uh, communication and education courses are very helpful. It identifies, it It places our practice in the the research. And so what's shown to be effective, then if we can learn from that, uh, that'll make our efforts to communicate and educate that much more effective too.
0: Well, Eileen, those are all the questions I have uh, for you today. Um, Is there anything you want to add or anything I missed?
1: No, just thank you so much for the opportunity, Daniel. It's really nice to chat with you. And yeah, all those potential scientists and earth scientists out there, go for it. It's an awesome field. And, you know, science is such a big foundation of our lives anyway, because it's all about questioning and exploring and discovering. So we do a lot of that just in general, anyway. So lots of fun.
0: Well, thanks for sitting down with me today, Eileen, and thanks for laying the foundations for uh, geoscience education and just being passionate about what you do. <laughs>
1: My pleasure. Nice to chat with you, Daniel.
0: Thanks for listening to Honor. Honor is hosted by me and produced by myself. Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.